0: Hi, this is Paul Spellman. This is my podcast. I have a story about that. Welcome back. This is uh, podcast number five, if you're keeping count. Uh, this one I title a, a Pearl Harbor story. I've been looking forward to telling this story, and I hope you enjoy it. It's uh, it's a great story that um, you've probably not heard before, and I think um, I think you'll learn some things from it as we go along. It's about. A guy named Louis Wesley Walters. Louis Walters was born in 1925, and when he was just a child, his family brought him to Hawaii, where he has lived almost his entire life. Here in the spring of 2019, uh, Louis is still alive and getting ready to celebrate his 94th birthday. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Lewis and uh, really how I came across him. Um, last year, uh, we were in Hawaii. We were visiting our daughter who was living in Kalea, and we went down to the beach. We were walking along the beach on a beautiful afternoon, and we looked up under the palm trees, and there was a little old man sitting there, kind of hunched over in a wheelchair all by himself, and so out of some curiosity, of course, I went up there and introduced myself and he said hi i'm uh i'm lewis walters and i said well mr walters it's really nice to meet you um you're kind of all bundled up here up under these palm trees all by yourself uh, uh do you uh is this something that you uh, do a lot he said he said yes i've uh i've lived in um hawaii all my life and my uh, my son is uh, walking our dog on the beach right now and he brings me here and i sit here while he walks up and down the beach with our uh, dog each day. I said, well, that's uh, that's wonderful. I said, uh, so you've lived in Hawaii um, your whole life? And he said, yes, that's right. I thought to myself, oh, wait a minute. If he's, uh, if he's been living in Hawaii all of his life, and he's born, looked like pretty old, I would guess that he might have been around in December of 1941. And so I asked him first. I said, So, um, Mr. Walters, um, how old are you? He said, Well, I'm 93. And I said, Well, let me ask you a question. I said, uh, Were you here in Hawaii um, in 1941 uh, at Pearl Harbor? And he looked up at me and he said, Yes, I was. And I said, Well, listen. If you don't mind, I'd love for you to tell me the story because um, I'm an historian, I love teaching history, I write history, and uh, my father is in the Navy, so I've got a great affection for uh, World War II stories, and I'm wondering if you would tell me yours. And he said yes, in a somewhat halting voice and kind of staring down at the ground on occasion Mr. Walters told me his story. He was 16 when the Pearl Harbor attack commenced on that Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941, a story I'm sure most of my listeners are quite familiar with. His father, George Walters, was actually there at Pearl Harbor that morning. He was the crane operator over in the dry dock area, uh, looking over the USS Pennsylvania, an American battleship that was dry docked for repair and maintenance. And George Walters was one of the first to see the Japanese airplanes as they came in low over the island and began the attack on Pearl Harbor. There's an iconic picture, I'm um, holding it up right now, which is probably not much help to you, uh, listening to the podcast, but uh, it's an iconic picture. I'm sure you've seen it. There are several of those of the Pearl Harbor attack, and this one particularly is is an aerial view uh, somewhat uh, back uh, to the south. And in this particular picture, which shows just the very first uh, bombings that were taking place there along Battleship Row, off to the right side of that picture, uh, you can actually see the crane um, as it it stands there over in the dry dock uh, warehouse uh, district at the eastern edge of uh, Pearl Harbor. Mr. Walters continued with his story. He said, so I was just arriving uh, that morning from home because I was an electrician's apprentice and I was working in the carpentry shop there at the warehouse literally below the crane where my father was working. He said, as I arrived there, I looked and and the crane was going back and forth, swinging almost uh, erratically. And I thought, goodness gracious, something is terribly wrong. And I looked up there, and my father was uh, was operating that crane, and he would swing it towards uh, the harbor, and then he would swing it back again. And as I watched in astonishment, Mr. Walters tells me the story, uh, Japanese airplanes began coming in, it seemed, from everywhere. And he said it dawned on me what my father was doing. He was actually doing two things. He told me later the first thing he was doing was he was trying to literally swing the crane in the direction of Pearl Harbor as a way of signaling to anybody uh, who was um, in the vicinity to look in that direction to see what was happening. But he said also as the attack continued, Uh, Japanese aircraft uh, came in his direction as well, spotting the USS Pennsylvania there in uh, dry dock. And so he said, I was literally swinging that crane like swatting flies to keep the Japanese planes from bombing uh, the USS Pennsylvania. And in fact, the Pennsylvania was spared uh, from being bombed or damaged uh, during the Pearl Harbor attack. At the uh, end of the attack, as uh, sirens were going off everywhere and great billows of smoke were going up into the sky as 19 American naval vessels began to sink or list uh, from the damage of the attack, Mr. Walter said uh, a buddy of mine who was there in the carpentry shop, he and I uh, ran down to the uh, edge of the water and began dragging the bodies of sailors out of the water as they floated across the harbor. And we put them in carts and wagons that we had nearby and we would bring them back to a warehouse there and we would line them up in the warehouse and then we would go back down to the waters and drag more bodies out of the harbor. He said we did it all day long. That's a remarkable story. I I, I love that story and I love the way he told it. It was as if he was right back there all over again. I think he could see it in his mind and hear the noises uh, that were associated with it. And then he told me a really fascinating side story uh, with a kind of a chuckle as he did. He said that uh, at the end of the attack, as the smoke was still billowing and everyone was still running and screaming, the the supervisor of the uh, dry dock area uh, came uh, driving madly down into the area. He had seen the crane swinging back and forth uh, during the attack, and he jumped out of his car, and he ran up to my father, who was still sitting up in the, uh, in the crane, and uh, said, uh, Walters, what are you doing up there? You're going to break that crane. It's going to fall over. And, and he said my father tried to explain to him what he was doing, but the supervisor wouldn't have it and he said he fired my father right on the spot and forced him to get out of the crane and walk away and uh, after a pause Mr. Walter said uh, uh, sometime later when everyone uh, heard what had actually happened uh, my father not only got his job back but he got a citation for uh, uh, heroism uh, and valor uh, in that particular moment at Pearl Harbor so I'm listening to the story as I'm standing there on the beach uh, and absolutely shaking my head. It's just a, a wonderful story. And again, uh, Mr. Walters was just so engaging as he, you know, he just became 60 years younger as he began telling that story along the way. And so I I thanked him so very much. And, and, um, and I said, uh, you know, I guess you have probably had lots of experiences along the way. He said... He said, yeah, let me tell you another story. Now, before I go on to his second story, uh, I must tell you that if, uh, if you want to uh, corroborate uh, this story, you can actually uh, find uh, Mr. Walters. Uh, if you Google it or look on the internet, look up Lewis Walters, Pearl Harbor, and you'll see several stories. He's been um, uh, interviewed a number of times over the years. He's uh, received an award from a uh, Navy Journal. Uh, his uh, story has been written up uh, in many different ways, and it's this particular story that I've just shared with you about him being at Pearl Harbor uh, that morning of December seventh, nineteen forty-one. Uh, without the little side story about his father being fired uh, later that same day and then getting his job back sometime later, that's a little uh, extra bonus here. But we're not uh, we're not nearly through here. Uh, this story uh, just seemed to get better and better, and I haven't seen anywhere else in writing where the rest of this story has been told. So as far as I know, uh, this is new information from me to you, from Louis Walters. He said, so, um, as the war came to an end, he said, I continued to do contract work uh, now that I was uh, of age. Uh, for the uh, US government, I did carpentry work, I did electrical work, and I was a uh, truck driver for a number of uh, private companies uh, that worked for the uh, government. The war had come to an end, and uh, he continued to work uh, into his 20s. Now it was into the 1950s as he's continuing to reminisce, uh, to remember those days back then, and then he began to tell me a completely new and different story of his experience in 1954 thirteen years after Pearl Harbor and he began to talk about an experience he had had in the Marshall Islands Now, in 1954 in the Marshall Islands in a special top-secret program of the United States military called Castle Bravo. There were a series of six tests of thermonuclear weapons around a small little island on the far northwest corner of the Marshall Islands called the Bikini Atoll. The first one was on March the first 1954. For the next eight weeks there were a series of six different tests that took place of new and larger and more powerful hydrogen bombs that had been experimented for almost a decade. The very first of the experiments of the detonation of a hydrogen bomb took place on July 1, 1946, in operations Crossroads, as it was called. But now, eight years later, in the Marshall Islands still, there were a series of Uh, more tests that would take place. At this particular uh, test, uh, the Castle Bravo uh, test of March first, 1954, a 15 megaton TNT thermonuclear weapon housed in a cylinder nicknamed the shrimp was detonated uh, over that island. Now i was got to thinking about this before I tell Mr. Walter's story, uh, and I looked all of this information up about a, uh, a megaton TNT bomb, and just to give you an idea, this boggles my own mind as I put these numbers together, megaton is short for a one million ton, so the detonation of this particular hydrogen bomb, what was called the first lithium hydride thermonuclear weapon to be detonated, was 15 megatons of TNT, the equivalent of 15 1 million tons of TNT being detonated. Clearly, as it had done in some of the earlier tests as part of Operation Crossroads, the uh, island and area surrounding this detonation were absolutely devastated. And here's a little side story that um, Mr. Walters didn't tell me, but I came across as I was doing some research on the story he was getting ready to tell me. Um, In the attack that took place, the test that took place in 1946 as Operation Crossroads, there were a number of uh, American uh, vessels that were stationed various miles in each direction as a way of testing the results and consequences of these uh, hydrogen bombs. One of the ships that had just been decommissioned that sat out on the ocean there was the USS Pennsylvania, the ship that had been in dy- dr- at dry dock uh, all those years earlier uh, at Pearl Harbor it was damaged sufficiently and also by the radioactive fallout that occurred as a consequence of the bomb, and three years later was uh, scuttled uh, off the coast of Guajelan, which is the larger island in the center of the Marshall Islands. So I don't know that uh, Mr. Walters knew that part of the story, and at the time I didn't know it to tell him. But uh, his uh, relationship with the USS Pennsylvania was interesting, to say the least, because here's the story he told me. In March of 1954, he was still a contract worker for the United States military, and the assignment that year was to accompany a series of, uh, a group of trucks, a convoy, if you will, of trucks, army trucks, uh, to the island of Kwajalein, and test the consequences of the uh, thermonuclear weapons detonation uh, miles and miles away to the northwest at the Bikini Atoll. So he was actually on Kwajalein on that day in March of 1954 uh, with a convoy of trucks uh, as part of the test uh, that was going on. Kwajalein is a flat coral island, only about six square miles, but it is also one of the largest islands among the uh, the Marshall Islands. The Marshall Islands sit out in the Southwest Pacific, about 2,000 miles uh, southwest of Hawaii, midway between Hawaii and New Guinea, and almost directly south of Wake Island. And again, right in the center of these uh, coral islands is Kwajalein. And there Mr. Walters told me uh, he stood watching as off to the northwest, hundreds of miles away, uh, the detonation took place. It was sufficiently far away so that the radioactive fallout did not reach Quixellin, although it certainly had a devastating effect on several of the islands and the islanders nearby on a number of um, vessels that were also in the area and a number of Navy personnel, including even some uh, Japanese fishermen who were on a couple of vessels uh, much too close, as it turned out, uh, to where the bomb had been detonated. In fact, the 15 megaton uh, detonation was so much more than they had anticipated in their original testing uh, studies uh, that they simply were not prepared for the massive uh, cloud of radioactivity that uh, that moved from there. And uh, over the next number of weeks and months that radioactivity was measured uh, in several different parts of the world uh, as it circled uh, the globe. But for Mr. Walters, uh, he had been uh, sufficiently far away uh, not to be adversely affected by the bomb but in his own memory a remarkable uh, experience to say the least. So uh, Mr. Walters um, at uh, Pearl Harbor and then uh, 13 years later uh, in the Marshall Islands for the testing of the hydrogen bomb. And we're not even quite finished yet. He's got one more story he wanted to tell me. By this time I was absolutely uh, entranced by uh, Mr. Walters and his stories, he told them very quietly, very calmly, again kind of mostly staring down in the sand as I uh, stood there uh, uh, by his wheelchair, and he uh, reminisced and found himself years and years back in the past. And so the third story he told me, which again, as far as I've been able to find so far, has not been uh, told in much detail in any of his previous reminiscences Or in the uh, interviews that he has had. This one we skip another 13 years, uh, probably, although he wasn't positive of the date, but the research I've done indicates this may have been in 1967. So we've gone 13 years from 1941 to 1954, and now we skip another 13 years to 1967. And in 1967, we are now in Vietnam as the Vietnam War continues to escalate in 1967 and the presence of American military personnel now is fast approaching half a million uh, with all branches of the armed services now uh, in full uh, involvement uh, in Vietnam. Mr. Walters was there as well. He was there again as a uh, contract worker uh, driving trucks Uh, in and around the various bases and towns uh, in uh, uh, South Vietnam. At that time uh, he mentioned that he was uh, uh, working uh, for the government. Uh, My research tells me that he was probably a contract worker for a a group of uh, construction uh, uh, corporations out of the United States called the RMK BRJ. This included, among others, the BR for Brown and Root, which was a subsidiary at the time of Halliburton Oil. So he's working as a truck driver, likely for Brown and Root, um, and thus for RMK BRJ, which had been there since 1962, responsible for a lot of the construction, uh, the marine bases, a lot of work uh, f- along the coast of South Vietnam, and so on. And so he's telling me this story. He said, "Now I'm in Vietnam, and um, he said I'm driving along in a convoy of uh, of workers when all of a sudden we were uh, uh, set upon by Viet Cong, and the truck conv- convoy came to a screeching halt." Uh, out in the middle of the jungle area, not uh, too far from Saigon, but far enough away to know that we were in big trouble. And the Viet Cong uh, attacked the truck convoy. Having attacked the convoy and killed a number of workers, it took the rest of us as hostages. And Louis Walters now related over the next few minutes in his story about being held as a captive of the Viet Cong. He and a couple of dozen of the other drivers, the other drivers all were specifically related to Halliburton uh, and Brown and Root. Uh, He was not uh, part of that particular group, but was part of the convoy. They were taken into the jungle, where they were uh, kept in a makeshift temporary uh, prison camp there in the jungle. He says, we weren't... um, we weren't held in uh, crates or um, any kind of uh, confinement one way or another uh, uh, to make sure that we did not try to escape instead they would um, cut into the backs of our ankles along the Achilles tendon and insert bamboo strips and the pain of those bamboo strips inserted into the back of our uh, ankles would prevent anyone trying to run off uh, into the jungle. He said it was excruciating and they stayed uh, as still as they possibly could. Well a couple of days went by and then all of a sudden there was a lot of activity and the Viet Cong uh, came and uh, rounded all the uh, workers up and uh, began to walk them out to a road nearby where they were placed on a couple of uh, trucks and Uh, driven uh, towards the um, RMK camp that was some miles away. Apparently uh, they had asked for a ransom from uh, RMK and had been paid uh, for the safety of the, uh, the drivers of the contract workers. So Lewis Walters tells me the rest of the story so they're being taken back towards the camp and he said, uh, we now could see the uh, Halliburton camp uh, uh, coming up. Uh, all the other workers uh, who worked for them were wearing a, a kind of a uniform. They wore black pants and white shirts. And he said, really more by coincidence than anything else, I happened to be wearing black pants and a white shirt as well, although I was not part of that particular company. But he said, the Viet Cong drove us up to uh, an, an area just short of the camp where they then released us and we were all now walking towards the camp. He said, I know I didn't belong to that uh, particular uh, camp where the Halliburton workers were, but he said I wasn't going to be left out here in the middle of nowhere, so I just sort of um, became part of the group and kind of inched my way in with the rest of them as they were now uh, walking back to the camp. He said, I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen once I uh, got to the gates of this, uh, this camp I didn't have any identification that related me to that particular camp, and I was afraid that maybe the Halliburton people or the soldiers there would turn me away, and then where would I be left out by myself with the Viet Cong uh, off on one side. said, so just as I was reaching the gate and not quite clear what was going to happen, another convoy of trucks happened to be driving up from the other side, coming up the, a side road, and one of the guys in one of the trucks recognized me as I stood outside the gate. The Viet Cong, by this time, he said, had disappeared off into the jungle. My friend hollered at me. He said, hey, Walters, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking for a ride out of here. Can you give me one? He said, oh, sure, jump in. He said, I got in the truck and we took off for Saigon. <laughs> I love Lewis Walters. I love those stories, um, what a great set of experiences and what an absolute joy it was to have run into him under the palm trees on a beach in Hawaii. Um, I, uh, I hope someday I might be able to get back there again to find him somewhere, I doubt that that will happen, but I love telling his story and um, I love having done the research behind the story and found out that, in fact, it seems like everything he told me was a true experience of quite a man. Well, I hope you've enjoyed my uh, my story of Lewis Walters, and um, we'll uh, be back again sometime soon. Until then, um, I hope you find a story you can tell, and I'll find another one that I can share. I'm Paul Spellman, and this has been uh, number five of my podcast I have a story about that. Take care.